This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Rico Bronia. To any Giant fan that blames us, that blames the Foo Philly edition of Rico Bronia for the reason that the Giants got their ass kicked, I'm sorry. I feel bad. What can I tell you? It doesn't take away my dislike for Philadelphia, led by the Philadelphia Phillies, and yes, the Philadelphia 76ers, but it sucked, I admit it, even as a Jet fan. I didn't like watching the Giants get their ass kicked, but you did. And so now it's baseball season. So if you're a New York football Giants fan tuning into the Rico to be distracted, we're here for you. Today is about the Hall of Fame, not just the Baseball Hall of Fame, but the Mets Hall of Fame, because the Mets gave us an announcement a couple days ago that they are inducting not one, not two, not three, but four different gentlemen, all well-deserving of it, into the Mets Hall of Fame. We'll go through some of the guys on the regular Hall of Fame ballot and their impact on the Mets. I've got some shocking stories about how some of these balloters were almost Mets. It's funny. It always turns into that, but there are a lot of examples of it. And I think it will lead eventually to a podcast that has been requested, the almost met edition of Rico Bronia, where we go through all the different guys that almost became Mets or almost became Mets when they were good because they later became Mets when they suck. So we'll go through the bat in a little bit. Let's start with the Mets Hall of Fame announcement. Gary Cohen, Howie Rose, Howard Johnson, and Al Leiter. Al Leiter is a guy who, for the last three or four years, more than that probably now, five years, anytime I've ever talked about the Met Hall of Fame, which isn't that often, but anytime it's ever come up, I've always mentioned how Al Leiter needs to be there. Because when you look back at those late 90s Mets, he was the stalwart in the rotation. You know, you had a lot of comings and goings over the years. Mike Campton obviously made the big impact when he was there in 2000. Uh, Masato Yoshi, Kenny Rogers. Yeah, right. But Al Leiter was the stalwart. And Al Leiter was the guy who obviously pitched us to a lot of us in our generation's first playoff appearance, because we may not remember 1988, when he won that play-in game, essentially, against the Cincinnati Reds. And really, even though he never had a playoff win as a Met, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about because that playoff game is not considered a postseason game. It's considered a regular season game. Al was a big game pitcher. Al was a guy who I always wanted to have the baseball in his hands in a big spot. And unfortunately for him, there were two games that jump out at me where it's not his fault, but the Mets lost brutal, brutal postseason games when Al Leiter left his guts on the mound. And that, of course, is in the 2000 World Series. He pitched game one and had a chance to win but Armando Benitez couldn't seal the deal in the ninth inning. Don't want to go over it again. You already know what happened. But I was great in that game. Game one, World Series, facing Andy Pettit, his former team, Yankee Stadium, a kid from Jersey who understands Mets versus Yankees. And the guy pitched a hell of a game. 
Then he comes back in game five with the Mets backs to their wall down three games to one. And what does he do there? He throws 135, no, I think it was 145 pitches, and unfortunately gives up that roller to Luis Soho that goes down as the game winner. And I never regretted the fact that Bobby V kept Al in that game because I wanted Al Leiter on the mound. I trusted him the most, and unfortunately, he gave up a roller to Luis Soho that found the hole. The Met offense was limp. They didn't do anything in that game. And so Al Leiter was on the wrong end, unfortunately, of two awful losses in Met history. But that guy had his balls left out on the mound. And so I'm very happy that Al Leiter's getting that recognition he deserves. For whatever reason, he remind. This is weird to me. He's very Tiki Barber-like. Now, I think Tiki's done a good job of changing this, being on the fan. Obviously, Pete works with him all the time. We're giant fans are starting to love Tiki Barber again. But for a long time, I think Tiki would admit this, he was disliked by giant fans. And there were a few reasons why. Uh, he made a controversial, I didn't even think it was that controversial, but he gave an opinion about Eli Manning. But the other thing that I thought contributed to it, because I remember doing overnights at the time, is that he publicly announced he was retiring. And for whatever reason, giant fans didn't like it in the middle of a playoff race. But whatever the reason, I don't want to relitigate the way Giant fans feel about Tiki. He was not loved by Giant fans for a while the way he deserved to be loved as the greatest running back in the history of the franchise. I bring this up because I feel like Al Leiter has suffered from that, where I don't think Met fans love Al Leiter. And I've tried to put my finger on why was it him associating himself with the Yankees and working for the Yes Network for a while? Maybe. Maybe it's because he and John Franco had this bad reputation at the end of like having a direct line to Fred Wilpon. That was a thing that was out there in 2003, 2004, before his time here finally ended after the 04 season. But for whatever reason, when Al Leiter came back, I think to Shea Stadium to close it in 2008, he got booed. And that just drove me nuts. Like, how the hell could Al Leiter ever get booed? Al Leiter was a really good Met. He was a clutch Met. Look at his numbers. When you talk about some of the great starting pitchers in the history of the franchise, obviously you start with Tom Seaver. You continue with Jacob DeGrom and Doc Gooden and guys like that. But Al Leiter is not that far down the list. He really isn't. And again, being the ace of a team, and I think he was the ace despite Mike Hampton maybe having that nod in 2000. Al Leiter was the ace of a team that made the playoffs in back-to-back years. That's not something we've seen a lot in Met history. He was the ace of a team that won the National League pennant. So when I saw that Al got in, I was very happy for him. I think he's a great Met. And Pete, I think he's always been a very underappreciated New York Met. I actually agree with you on that fact that, that he's underappreciated. And it's amazing because you don't think that you he Al Leiter had a long career. He spent seven years with the Toronto Blue Jays. But he pitched the most innings for the New York Mets. He was with the Mets for seven seasons. He pitched over, what, 1,300 innings with the Mets? That's, that's, that's more than, I think... What more than double, triple? Toronto, he pitched only four hundred innings. Yeah, uh, the yeah. the Marlins, same thing too. Even though in a World Series with them, but the point is, is that the um the Mets fan never appreciated him, and I think it's because it's this weird thing of you get to the playoffs early, and then the team start to be bad, and that's the last taste in your mouth. He was on some bad, not so great Mets teams. Yeah, he was on 02, obviously, 03 and 04. And by the end, even though Al Leiter actually had a statistically good year in his last year with the Mets, the knock on him, and it was absolutely true, by the way, what I'm about to say, 
is that he would throw 110 pitches and get through five innings. And that would be it. So, you know, Beningo, before I was working with him, would always scrape out his guy, 120 pitches. He's out after five innings. And I agreed with him. Like, I didn't hate him for it, but it was frustrating. 3-2 outlier because every batter worked to a 3-2 count. It's it's a weird phenomenon, but I'm glad he's getting the day he deserves, and I hope that Met fans give him the love he deserves. Howard Johnson was always a beloved Met, and Howard Johnson's interesting because he sort of bridged the 80s Mets, you know, being a part of the 86 team, and then bridged the really, really bad Mets in 1993. And unfortunately for me as a fan, I've always said the first year I remember is 1992. That's the first year I really remember. And that was it for Howard Johnson. Like, he sucked in 1992. He was terrible in 1993. Then he bounces around the NL, plays for the Rocky, plays for the Cubs, and then tries to make a comeback with the Mets in spring training a few years later. Uh, Never made it, so never returned to the Mets. But I do remember rooting that on. Because I knew what Howard Johnson was. I knew that he led the league in home runs in 1991, that he was a 30-30 guy, that he was a big part of the 80s team. And Howard is almost the opposite of Al in that he was a beloved man. So even when things got bad at the end, uh, and he was never great defensively, not that I want to pick on Hojo, but he was always loved. And for me, he was that final kind of fossil from the old days that my dad would tell me about because he would tell me about Keith Hernandez. He was gone. He would tell me about Gary Carter. He was gone. He would tell me about Ron Darling. He was gone. Obviously doc was still there. Darrell was gone. Nobody was left, you know? So Howard Johnson was sort of that bridge between the really good to the really bad. You remember some of his good years though, Pete, right? Oh, well dude, Howard Johnson's my all time favorite met like that. Really? Oh, hundred percent switch hitter. So I tried to be a switch hitter. I had the batting gloves, had the stance, had everything. Um, my father had a very similar beard too. So that, that kind of like, I saw that connection type of thing. Like, Oh, look, look, my dad, he could play third base for the Mets. Right. Duh. But no, <laughs> but it, I rocked a 20 because of him. I was, it's weird because I'm only a year older than you. But Howard Johnson had an impactful part to my life, especially being a Mets fan. He was definitely like someone that was like, I was locked in. That's my dude. Well, that one year is huge because if I understood baseball in 1991 and I was just, I was just too young and I was seven turning eight. So I watched it. I'm sure. I think I have scored games from it, but I don't remember it. Like it just isn't fresh in my mind. But if I did remember 1991, Howard Johnson at 38 home runs. He was he was a beast. He had one of the best seasons of his career that year. So in this case, with this player, the one-year or two-year difference is monstrous. It's the difference between seeing a guy who sucks and seeing a guy who's awesome. It's my, it's, it's my case on why there's so many more. And this is not supposed to get into this diatribe of, of Yankees versus Mets, but I almost got my stepkid to be a Met fan. And in 2016, they were in the playoffs. The Yankees were not. And I'm like, oh, my God, he may be a Met fan because of this. And then the next year, the Mets didn't return, and the Yankees started to soar, and Aaron Judge started to take off. And it's like, that. it, it is. It, he was like six or seven around that time. And it's like, it's a, it really that one-year difference is so huge. Completely forgot about what the Mets were, and now he's a diehard Yankee fan. Yeah, and look, if you were growing up, similar age to me and you, it was sort of the same thing. It was the end of the Mets, which really kind of went down in 91, 92 in that area. And then the beginning of the Yankees, because by 1994, they were a tremendous baseball team. The strike kind of short circuited that. 
Uh, the other two inductees are incredibly well-deserving, Gary Cohen and Howie Rose. I, I always wonder with broadcasters, when is the time to do it? Because Howie Rose is still going strong. I, I mean, he's still the radio voice of the Mets. I don't think he's retiring, hopefully, anytime soon. Gary Cohen is still the voice of the Mets on TV. He's going strong. I don't think he's retiring anytime soon. So I looked back at the original three of uh, Bob Murphy, Ralph Kiner, and Lindsey Nelson to wonder, when did they go into the Mets Hall of Fame? And when I saw the year, I said, okay, this makes sense then. Bob Murphy, who broadcasted well into the 2000s, and even Ralph Kiner on a part-time basis, got into the mid-2000s. They were honored in 1984, which if you do the math, is only 22 years into the Mets' existence. Gary and Howie are blown out away. I mean, I grew up listening to Howie Rose do Mets Extra. Gary Cohen, to me, was always the radio voice of the Mets. So they've blown that bar away that Murphy and Kiner and Lindsey Nelson had. So fantastic. They deserve it. To me, Gary Cohen, and this is a weird compliment, but it, I really believe it. When he did radio, especially for the brief time where it was Gary and Howie, I think Gary Cohen is pound for pound the greatest radio baseball play-by-play play guy I've ever heard. I think he's that good. He's, he's great on TV. Don't get me wrong. It's not a, a knock on what he does on TV. But I thought the way he painted a picture on radio was as brilliant as it gets. So when he got the opportunity to broadcast in 06 after he jumped the TV and sort of pushed Tom McCarthy to the side, <laughs> I didn't mind it because Gary was awesome. So you had Gary Cohen calling the Andy Chavez catch, which could have been historic if the Mets actually won the game. Howie has been, Howie's the heartbeat of the Mets. That's what I like to say about Howie Rose. And Gary is too as well, but Howie grew up, knows everything about the history of the team, feels the history of the team. You could feel it when you hear him. And so I think these two guys are incredibly well-deserving and I'm glad they got in. And the timing is right because as much as I initially thought, why now? Again, looking back at when they honored Bob Murphy and when they honored Ralph Kiner, they did it 22 years into the Mets' existence. Both guys have broadcasted far longer than that. Is there someone else that you feel like got slighted or or is on the cusp of making the Hall of Fame that didn't make it this year? So there is a list, and I made one, Pete. It's almost like we (laughs) pre-plan these repos. We don't, but he reads my mind well. (laughs) I made a list of who's next, or at least who I think can be next. Uh, keep this in mind because I was looking at the list of who's in the Met Hall of Fame because it's not something we actually all remember. So I'll go real quick. Uh, Joan Payson, who was the owner of the team, the original owner of the team. Casey Stengel, obviously, original manager. Gil Hodges, World Series manager. George Weiss, which I don't understand. He's a former Yankee executive, and he was an executive in the mid-60s. So I guess you know, he left in 66, so you want to say he sort of contributed to the the building blocks of the 69 team, I guess. Uh, Johnny Murphy, who was a scout, William A. Shea, of course, Ralph Kiner, Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson. All right, let's get to the players now because the Mets had to honor non-players for the first 25 years. Buddy Harrelson, 69 team, 73 team, coach in 86. Rusty Staub, LeGrand Durange. George Thomas Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Ed Cranepool, Cleon Jones, Jerry Grody, Tug McGraw, Mookie Wilson, Keith Hernandez. Basically, they were inducting guy one guy every single year in the early 90s and late 80s. Then they missed a few years and finally inducted Gary Carter, who came out four years after Keith, which is a little weird to me, but whatever. Tommy Agee, 
back in, and then they had an eight-year layoff, and in 2010, they brought all the 86 guys back. Frank Cashin, who's hated by a lot of Met fans, Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Davey Johnson. 2012, Johnny Franco. 2013, Mike Piazza. And then in 2020-2021, they put in P- uh, Eduardo Alfonso, Ron Darling, and John Matlack. Keep this in mind before I give you a list of some names. Every single player who made the Met Hall of Fame was on a pennant-winning team. Think about that. Either 2000 or 86 or 73 or 69. Most of these guys won championships, but obviously with Piazza and Alfonso, they were on a pennant-winning team. So as I was kind of realizing that, one of the guys I thought about was Johan Santana. Just thought about Johan. I thought he was a pretty good Met. He was obviously a big part of the history, throwing the first no-hitter in in the history of the franchise, and also threw one of the great clutch performances of all time, Game 161 in 2008 on three days rest with a torn meniscus. So I think Johan's a guy that should be honored, but he never pitched in the playoffs for the Mets. And that's not a knock on him. It's not his freaking fault. But I don't know. Does Johan make the cut, Pete? I think so. I think so. I think really what it is more than Johan should be definitely in. It's like we should always have a block on the whale ponds. They should never get in the Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? Like that, that's, <laughs> that's what that's what that says is that the whale ponds just really mismanaged their organization for so long. Johan Santana did everything right. You can't blame Johan Santana for uh, an organization not supporting the team. Johan made 109 starts with the Mets over four years, so it's not the hugest sample size in the world, but actually pitched to a lower ERA with the Mets than he did with Minnesota and finished third in the National League Cy Young voting his first year of 08. It's not a lot of time. I mean, Johan Santana was essentially a really good Met for three seasons. I wanted to bring him up out of the gate just because I think it's controversial because the other guys, there's no debate on. Like, obviously, David Wright. I mean, what? Okay, let's move on. I mean, what, what, what's there to say about that? So I bring up Johan because can he break through? And if Johan gets in, then here's another guy who blows Johan away in terms of years spent with the Mets and dominance with the Mets. And again, did not pitch for a pennant winning team. And that person spent seven years with the Mets, more years with the Mets than any other team he pitched for. He won 81 games with the Mets. One more games than any other team he pitched for. Made 169 starts and threw 1,200 innings. More than any amount of innings with any other team. That person I'm talking about is David Cohn. So can David Cohn break through and be honored by the Mets? I mean, to me, I think he should. He was a great, he was a tremendous Met. Was a part of the 88 team that at least made the playoffs. Unlike Santana, you know, David pitched in the postseason, but Again, you talk about some of the great Met pitchers of all time. We know who leads kind of the list, but David Cohn may make that five-man rotation. Yeah, but what's the criteria? Like, because again, like I, I, I think David. It's funny because I know that he won the World Series with, with the Yankees, and he had significant games with the Yankees. But I do see him almost like more of a Met or split time. You know, we talk about Al Leiter. Al Leiter should always be thought of as a Met more than anybody else. But David Cohn spent just as much time as as as. As Leiter did. So, so I don't understand how that, that would even be like a a conversation. He's definitely in. And Cone was, you know, Cone was better than Al Leiter. As much as I love Al, um, 
David Cohn is more of a Yankee only for this reason. Even though David was a better Met than Yankee, won more games, better ERA, better prime of his career was with the Mets than the Yankees. But we all know the difference. And that's, he was a big part of a dynasty. He won multiple championships there. He was such a key cog to that mid late nineties Yankees dynasty that that puts it over the top that I do think fair or not. David Cohn is more known as a Yankee than a Met. And I'll tell you where we benefit from that. We benefit from that with uh, Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza was a better Dodger. He was, I don't think it's debatable, but I think he's become known as a Met because he was the face of a team that got to a world series and became the face of this organization. So even though David Cohen, if, if we're debating it, was a better Met than Yankee, the championships play a big part of it. But if we're adding more guys to the Mets Hall of Fame, David Cohen is definitely one of them. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Some of the easy ones, David Wright, clearly. I don't think there's any doubt. Actually, he played the second most games in the history of the franchise. The other guy who I also think statistically is a no doubt about her is Jose Reyes. Jose Reyes is a Met Hall of Famer. He ended up playing in the third most games in the history of the franchise, which also reminds you that they've had such a tough time keeping position players around. Uh, we just did our last, last podcast on the guy. At some point, Carlos Beltran should go in the Mets Hall of Fame. We may not be ready to retire the man's number, but he probably should. Uh, the other borderline guys, and this one, I don't know if I should say this one out loud because I was thinking about it, and then I realized, A, I'm going to get a lot of hate emails for just for suggesting it, and B, he would get booed. Like, literally, there'd be an induction ceremony, and the guy would get booed. But... He was a very good Met in the regular season. And that guy's Armando Benitez. I'm sorry. Uh, it's just it's just the reality. Guy saved 160 games here. Guy saved 40, 41 and 43 games in back-to-back years. He was uh <laughs> You would have to make a special day for Armando Benitez. Like him... He gets retired or gets in the Hall of Fame on the same day that we pay Bobby Bonilla his last dollar. <laughs> that's what you'd have to do. Like it'd have to be some kind of odd celebration, and that's the only way. And because you, you're right, like you have benefit, you have nailed it down. How good Benitez was in his tenure. There just happened to be a lot of crappy games attached to him, like some really bad blowups. Yeah, and his reputation will never recover. You know, there are guys, I call it the Harry Truman effect. Harry Truman left office with the worst approval ratings, I think, in American history, and now is regarded as a top 10 president. Like, people Can look I- back at Harry <laughs> Truman, and he's very highly regarded. So he was able to turn his legacy around. It happened. How the Armando hell did- Benito, what was Hold that? On. How the hell do you find a way to either throw in a Nets reference or a presidency reference every podcast? That's imp- it- it's impossible, but you do it. Because it's relevant. I'm sorry. (laughs) The Harry Truman thing is very relevant. There are guys who can change their legacies. Carlos Beltran, I think, has a chance to change his legacy in the way Met fans view him. Armando Benitez is dead. Like, Armando Benitez is James Buchanan. 
There's nothing that's going to change his legacy. Armando Benitez, and I and I thought this guy was a great human, is Herbert Hoover. I'm sorry. He just is. Great humanitarian, by the way. Terrible president, or at least blamed for one of the catastrophes in American history. Armando Benitez is Herbert Hoover. Armando, fair enough. He is. He's there's no recovering his reputation. And the last guy I thought of, uh, besides current look, Jacob deGrom, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. And I think time will heal those wounds for anyone who still has wounds with him. I think he's going to have his number retired. So, you know, forget Met Hall of Fame. That's easy. Uh, And the other guy I thought about is Jesse Orozco. Jesse Orozco was a Met for eight years. He obviously has also become iconic because he was the guy on the mound for the last out of not just the World Series, but that classic game six that won the Mets the pennant. So if Tug McGraw's in the Met Hall of Fame, and he is, I said Tug's name, didn't I? He's in the Met Hall of Fame. I believe you did, yeah. I think I did. <laughs> I better double check that one. Then why the heck not? Why not Jesse Orozco? So he's definitely a guy to look at. Yes, Tug McGraw, 1993. Okay. There you go. Right. Can I give some names that I, I would think that should be or on the cusp? And some are fun. Like, you know, like you think of Bartolo Colon. And I, I, no, hold on, hold on. T- take him for what he was. He was a presence, and they should find some way to put him and recognize him. Again, the home run that he hit was pretty fun. And But again, he was in a t- an era, a time that the Mets weren't as great, but he was significant. He was a good piece of the team. R.A. Dickey had his moments. That's something to be, th- be thought of. And someone you didn't name, he wasn't a player, but Terry Collins. Yeah, I mean, well, Bobby Valentine, too. You know, if we want to honor the managers that won pennants, I, I would put Bobby Valentine ahead of Terry Collins, but I get it. I get it. But then again, Yogi Berra's not in the Met Hall of Fame, and he was the manager of the 73 team. Right. But you know what? But Yogi Berra had a name behind him, and he was a significant player. Terry Collins was arguably put in the worst situation as any manager of, a, of the New York Mets. He was basically, this team was dead. They were awful for years, and he just kind of had to deal with it. He had to try, try to wait to right the ship. And again, that 2015, when they went to the World Series, they weren't even supposed to be contenders. Yeah. And they took them to the World Series. Yeah, I, I think Bobby Valentine and Terry Collins are interesting. You know, getting to the World Series is a big deal for this franchise. We haven't done it a lot. And I think Valentine, I would actually make more of an argument for because he also took over when things were really, really bad. And he helped immediately transition them from this joke of a franchise managed by Dallas Green, Jeff Torberg, and guys like that into a respectable team in 97, 98, 99, and beyond. So I think both guys are deserving. Uh, That 2015 team is going to be interesting as years go by because we're seeing the 2000 team now start to get honored with Edgardo Alfonso, with Mike Piazza, with Al Leiter. Those are the three guys from the 2000 team, and they should be. I I think those are clearly the three guys. And you could probably stop there. I don't think Robin Ventura necessarily needs to get in, despite being an iconic moment. Benny Agbayani, Todd Pratt, guys like that. I think those three are very fair. Uh, 10, 20 years from now, we're going to look at that 2015 team. And I think DeGrom's easy. I think that's an easy one. You mentioned Terry Collins as a second. Beyond that, Cespedes for the show. I have David Wright, too, I know is a part of that team, so I don't want to leave him out. David, I don't think of David Wright strictly in 2015 terms because he wasn't the same guy as he was years earlier. But David Wright, Jacob deGrom, Terry Collins, I guess you could stop there. But Yoenis Cespedes and that trade and that impact was monstrous. And we all remember what it did for that team rising up and winning the division. Matt Harvey didn't do enough. Um, Noah Syndergaard didn't do enough. 
Jairus Familia, people hate. He's got the Benitez factor going on for him. <laughs> if Conforto ever comes back, and, you know, that, that that's a name that could be. Listen, Conforto, I, I could dog the guy as much as I want, but for he did have some good seasons with the Mets. And if he ever did come back in a couple of years, if there's availability, I mean, you could see him being honored for sure. He's got a lot of work to do. Pete Alonzo's on the right track. He's got a lot of work to do. If there are guys we missed, of course, you can email us, thericob at gmail.com or tweet at us. The National Baseball Hall of Fame is going to announce who gets in in a couple of days. I was perusing the ballot, and this isn't necessarily about who I think should be in the Hall of Fame or who Pete should be in the Hall of Fame, but really the connection a lot of these guys have to the Mets. Some obvious because they played for us. Some not obvious. Some, you wouldn't believe, almost became Mets. So let's go through this ballot. I'll start with one guy who never came close to being a Met, but is a big part of our history, and that's Scott Rowland. Scott Rowland is probably going to get in. I don't personally think of him as a Hall of Famer, but whatever. Scott Rowland is so memorable in my eyes because he's the guy that hit the ball off of Oliver Perez that was caught by Andy Chavez. So while I may not love that play, it may bring up horrible memories in my mind, it has become a celebrated play in the history of the franchise. And we shouldn't forget that it was Scott Rowland, of all people, who hit the ball and appeared it was going out for a two-run home run. Uh, He also had some great numbers against the Mets. Obviously began his career with the Philadelphia Phillies, so we saw him as a division rival moved on Cincinnati, St. Louis did not hit the Mets, by the way, in that NLCS only went five for 21, but looking at his career numbers, three thirteen batting average against the Mets, second highest average he has against any team, nine sixty eight OPS, second highest OPS he has against any team. And in 106 games hit 20 home runs and drove in 67 runs. So he was a tremendous player, but he also put up great career numbers against the Mets and when I think of Roland's connection with us, I think of A, the ball Endy caught, but then also in the bottom of that inning, after Chavez made the catch, Scott Roland made a massive error. And he's a gold glove defensive third baseman. I think a part of the reason why he is so strongly being considered for the Hall of Fame is his defense. He made an error in that bottom of the sixth that set the Mets up to take the lead. So before... Chavez and Valentin couldn't come through. Valentin struck out on a ball in the dirt and Andy popped up into the infield and the Mets failed in a golden opportunity to score right after Andy made the catch on the top of the inning. In that moment, Chavez makes a catch. They turn a double play and the greatest defensive third baseman of our generation makes a horrific error. I could have sworn we were going to the world series. It wasn't just the Andy catch. It was the fact that the great Scott Rowland made an error. But that, I think, is overall our connection to Roland. Andrew Jones is on the ballot. I will tell you, I think Andrew Jones is a Hall of Famer. He is the greatest defensive center fielder I've ever seen. And that's really what I think of when I think of Andrew Jones. His career numbers against the Mets, I looked him up. Nothing crazy. Hit 28 home runs. It was in 186 games. Played a lot. 260 career average against the Mets. Uh, Did not kill us in the 99 NLCS, even though we remember him for drawing the walk against Kenny Rogers that ended that series. He was only five for 23. But when I think back to Andrew Jones, 
I think of watching him play defense at Chase Stadium and thinking to myself, my God, how much would it help Al Leiter? How much would it help Masato Yoshihi to have that playing center field? Because he was like nothing I've ever seen. And I think I'm biased towards him because I watched him a lot. I mean, think about it. You're a Met fan. You watched Andrew Jones play at minimum 13 times a year because they didn't expand the division games until years later. Okay, then eventually 18 times a year, 19 times a year. So we were watching him more than anybody else other than Brave fans. And he would make plays that was so difficult, look so easy. So more than any at-bat, including that walk against Kenny Rogers, which is more about Kenny Rogers than it is Andrew Jones, I just think about his defense. And I think about him throwing out Jay Payton in 1998 when Jay Payton, that schmuck, was a pinch runner and decided to try to go to third base against the arm of Andrew Jones. Someone should have taught him. You don't effing run on Andrew Jones. Also on the ballot is Jeff Kent. I think this is Kent's final year on the ballot. What could you say about Jeff Kent? (laughs) I I think he's a Hall of Famer, and gosh darn it, he was a Met. We got him for David Cohn. That was the big return along with Ryan Thompson that we got back for trading David Cohn. And Jeff Kent is a Met. His numbers were fine. Like he was a good baseball player. Hit 280, a 780 OPS, hit 67 home runs for us over the course of five years. His best year with us. Let's see, what was his best year? Uh, I guess I would go with 94. Hit 14 home runs in 107 games. Had an 816 OPS. He was always a good baseball player. And then in 1998, at the age of 30, he joined the San Francisco Giants. And I don't know what happened, but he became an effing superstar. The guy won the MVP in a year in which he was a teammate of Barry Bonds. He won the MVP, not Barry Bonds. Jeff Kent's unbelievable, man. Pisses me off he didn't stay with us. So is the only reason why he's not a Hall of Famer is because he's a jerk? Is that is that really what it is? I mean, I can't understand it. It's him. It's Albert Bell. And this is what bothers me about the whole Hall of Fame. It's like, isn't it supposed to be on merit what you did in, in, in your baseball career and not if you're an ass or not? So I have theories on why Jeff Ken isn't a Hall of Famer, and I can't prove any of these theories, just some thoughts. Number one, he wasn't a great defensive player, and I'd be the first to admit that. We watched him play a lot of second base for our team. He was not good. I would say he was slightly below average would be the way I would define him. So he wasn't a butcher, but he was slightly below average. The other thing that I think hurts him is he does not have a home. What I mean by that is there is no fan base that screams and yells in love with Jeff Kent. You know, he spent six years with the San Francisco Giants. I don't think Giant fans adore him. I just don't. He spent five years with the Mets. We don't adore him. We don't even view him as a Hall of Famer. He spent... Four years with the Dodgers. People forget he was even a Dodger. He spent two years with the Astros. Great numbers. No one thinks of him as an Astro. So my theory with him is that he's just not connected to a franchise. It should be San Francisco. That should be the team. But there just isn't. And so, yeah, he does have a reputation as being a jerk. I never thought that was fair. I always liked Jeff Kent in my brief interactions with him. But what, what, what the hell do I know? Certainly not a writer. But it also doesn't matter. Like, who cares if he's a mean guy to a writer? Who cares if he won't give uh, Joel Sherman a quote? 
Like, what, what, what does that matter? So that, that it's either that or his defense. That always reminds me of the Ike Davis, Lucas Duda stuff. I forgot when it came out or how it came out, but there was a writer or a few writers that came out and said they wrote positively about Ike Davis because he was a nice guy and they spoke to the media (laughs) more. And that's why they didn't write as much or positive things about Lucas Duda. And it always made it always was confusing because they always touted Ike Davis as like this next up and coming first baseman. And meanwhile, the guy was pretty terrible besides that one year, but we had to live with the the, oh, he could be great, he will be great, and them dog and Lucas Duda. And they basically openly admitted that that they liked Ike Davis. And that, to me, is the downside of what people in the media do at times. Yeah, the, the only thing I, I, I would say is that we like to think that the writer's anger towards players is what causes them to not be in the Hall of Fame. But we've also seen these other ballots, the uh, modern-day ballot that we talked about recently, and guys still don't get it. So it's not necessarily just writers not liking them. You know, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens couldn't get in the Hall of Fame with writers. They couldn't get in the Hall of Fame with some of their peers. So you wonder sometimes if it's just that. Uh, another guy on the ballot is Andy Pettit. Andy Pettit's connection to us is that, you know, we faced him in the World Series in 2000. <laughs> faced, him, faced him a lot in interleague play. And my favorite Andy Pettit memory is that he started the very first Mets-Yankees Subway Series game in 1997, which led to a nice encounter I once had with Andy. I was at a baseball camp. I was 16 years old. I did about a two-week baseball camp. I loved playing baseball, even though I sucked at it. And the guest instructor for a day was Andy Pettit. And we were all told, you can have Andy autograph one item. So I brought my item in. I knew exactly what I wanted to have autographed. And I go up to Andy, and I show him a ticket stub. And he says... I have no problem signing this, but what is this ticket stuff from? I don't, uh, what is this? I said, Andy, this is the first ever Subway Series. You started it. He looks at me and says, yeah, but I lost it too. And I said, I know. I'm a Met fan. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a dude. He was a good dude. He signed it. He's like, ah, you. <laughs> I was a killer 16-year-old. What can I tell you? Gotcha. <laughs> That's awesome. Gotcha, Andy. But thanks for teaching us about your pickoff move. It's real good. Uh, Andy started game one and game five of that World Series. We talked about Al Leiter earlier on in the podcast. He faced Al Leiter. And he pitched well. Look, Andy Pettit pitched very well. He was always a money pitcher. Gary Sheffield is on the ballot. Story time, folks. So Gary Sheffield obviously ended up being a New York Met. Uh, Towards the end of his career was actually his final destination. He signed with the Mets in 2009. And played well, <laughs> believe it or not. He was a part-time player with us in 2009, had some clutch hits, hit his 500th home run because he came to the team at like 499. So he was a lot to get to his 500th home run. Uh, he did that at City Field. I thought that was sort of cool, even though I had no connection to Gary Sheffield. Guy was 40 years old. Guy bounced around baseball and played for a lot of our division rivals, including crosstown rival Yankees. So we all remember, I guess, his final year here. We're, again, productive. Gary Sheffield could hit to the very end. 276, 823 OPS, 10 home runs in 100 games. I got no issues. But here's the story time. If you recall, Gary Sheffield asked to be traded to the New York Mets following, or I'm sorry, before the 2001 season. Remember, Gary Sheffield began with Milwaukee, then San Diego, 
was a part of the Marlins, and then was actually traded for Mike Piazza in the Marlins-Dodger trade, the monster trade before we got Mike. Gary Sheffield spent a few years with the Dodgers, was incredibly productive, and after the 2000 season in which he had 43 home runs and drove in 109 runs with a 1,081 OPS, (laughs) Gary Sheffield wanted to be traded to the Mets. Here's legit reporting I think from the LA Times about this, the Mets have been unwilling to part with Mike Piazza, Edgardo Alfonso, and Armando Benitez in a potential deal for Sheffield. Let's stop there for a second. Obviously, I wasn't trading Piazza. Even though Sheffield was better than Alfonso, at that moment, I wasn't trading Alfonso either. Benitez, I would have shot into freaking orbit. So if Benitez was the holdup, I don't know what's going on. But this story is about to get worse, folks. The real crux of the issue is that the Mets refused to part with Jay Payton. (laughs) Gary Sheffield is quoted as giving his opinion on the fact the Mets wouldn't part with Jay Jay Payton. Jay Payton's going to be a great player, Sheffield told reporters at Dodgers camp. But you would think a guy like that, he's not a guy that's going to hit 40 home runs. I'm a guy that could hit 40 or 50. But Jay Payton is going to be a great player. <laughs> Jay Payton. Great player? Not so much. And Gary's just trying to be a nice guy. Gary's like, yeah, sure, he's going to be fine. But then he bashes him at the end by saying, yeah, but he's not going to be me. If the Mets were refusing to part with Jay Payton in a trade for Gary Sheffield after the 2001 season, or I guess this is before the 2001 season, that's right, it was after the Mets won the pennant. The year in which they said, nah, we're good with A-Rod. Let's make up a story about how he's this selfish douche. They also had a chance to get Gary Sheffield, but Gary Payton was the problem. So trade doesn't happen. Then, in the following offseason, we're at it again. Gary Sheffield wanted out, and the Dodgers were openly shopping him. Gary Sheffield also said that he would use his no-trade clause, though, even if traded to the Mets, because he wanted to renegotiate his contract, okay? So he had a full no-trade list, preferred to go to the Mets, the Yankees. Those are the two teams on his list of where he preferred to go, but he was going to want a brand-new contract, all right? Here's the Met offer. He ended up getting traded to the Braves, in case anyone forgot. He was traded to Atlanta for Andrew Brown, Brian Jordan, and Odalis Perez. So he didn't exactly get a monster return. The Mets offered, okay, so this is what the Mets offered a year later. Armando Benitez, Jay Payton. (laughs) They offered Jay Payton. A year later, they're like, F it, just take him. And Glendon Rush. The Dodgers turned it down. They accepted the brave deal. Gary Sheffield goes to the Atlanta Braves. But a year before that, they would have said yes. A year before that, the Dodgers would have said yes. They're so, who, who was the GM at that time? I got to call Steve Phillips, the great Steve Phillips. Stevie, what are you doing? Ruining our franchise. (laughs) I do think the second time around, I'm more skeptical about because of the whole contract negotiation. The Mets are probably going to have to give a lot of money. And I don't know if the Mets were willing to do that at that time. You know, after the 2001 season, they had signed Kevin Apier to replace Mike Campton. They ended up trading Apier from Ovon. I'm not sure if they were going to give Gary Sheffield a mega contract, but it does look bad. And these were separate articles I had read. I think from LA-based papers. I'm trying to remember. I should cite it. That's a bad job out of me. I apologize. Next time I cite a story, 
with all these fun rumors from 25 years ago. I should write down which paper. And maybe it's the New York Post. How about if I just say both papers and I get it covered? LA Times, New York Post, somebody. There you but go. that a year earlier, they're refusing to offer Jay Payton or Armando Benitez. And then a year later, they're like, take him. That sounds like, that sounds like something Pete Hoffman would do in fantasy. Well, watch yourself. But that does prove, though, how we were always – we never wanted to go for the jugular. And that was the problem with the Mets overall is that they'd hit a, a peak and then they'd fall back down to earth the next year because they just couldn't take that extra step. Gary Sheffield right. on the Mets would have been amazing. Incredible. Over. Incredible. I mean, look at his numbers. He was still a beast in his career. Uh, you keep him around, he gives you four or five monster seasons, but instead they were collecting artifacts. They acquired Roberto Alomar. They acquired Mo Vaughn. They tried to acquire Juan Gonzalez. It didn't work out. And yet Gary Sheffield was in their back pocket. So we ended up with Gary Sheffield many, many years later, 2009, final year of his career. But even long before that, they were factors. Another guy, and this one is well-documented. We all remember it, is, of course, Manny Ramirez. Manny Ramirez is on the ballot for the sixth time. Manny's complicated because I think we'd all agree he is a Hall of Famer, but he's a steroid guy. So if you're uh, an anti-steroid guy, you're not going to vote for Manny Ramirez. Guy got busted for steroids. If you don't give a rat's ass, then you're pro Manny Ramirez. We came very close, or at least we thought we came very close, to getting Manny Ramirez for Lasting's millage before he was eventually traded to the Los Angeles Dodgers in the midst of the 2008 season. But I think we were going after Manny during the 2006 season, or I'm sorry, 2007 season, seven into eight was when the rumors were really flying in of trading Lasting's Millage anyway to the Nationals in that trade for Ryan Church and Brian Schneider. But it, it would have been good to a degree because Manny at that point was 35 years old and was on the decline. He had that monster second half in 2008 for the Dodgers where it became Manny Wood. And that was really it. You know, Manny Ramirez then got busted for steroids, didn't play a lot, was relatively productive when he played, and then bounced around the league. You know, by 2010, he's everywhere. I don't know if anybody remembers this. He actually played for the Tampa Bay Rays for five games, played for the Chicago White Sox, played for the LA Dodgers. So not that Millage turned into anything because he didn't. But if we got Manny going into 09, 08, kind of in that range, he probably makes a huge difference in 08. Like maybe the Mets make the playoffs in 08 because they did miss by literally one game. But I think by 09 and 10, it would have been a disaster. So I think short term, we would have had some fun with it, but it wasn't going to have like the long term impact if we had pulled off that trade for Manny. I remember him in LA. His defense was horrendous. We yeah. talk about some bad outfielders that we've had on our on our team. Manny, we would have run him out of town. It would have actually probably been a nightmare. I think eventually it would have. Yeah, he may have led us if they made the trade going into 08 to the playoffs in 08. So maybe that would have, I guess, helped out our anger the following year or two. But it wouldn't have. Looking back on it, that one I don't have the hugest regret about. I don't know how things would have went, to be honest. Obviously, if it leads to a championship in 08, it's all worth it. But I'm not sure if any of that would have happened. I have regrets on on Sheffield. I have regrets on Vlad Guerrero. Those, those two in particular. Yes, the flat one sucks. Yes. Uh, shoulder. Couple, couple, shoulder of other, <laughs> couple of other guys on the ballot. Billy Wagner obviously played for our team. I don't have positive feelings towards Billy. I blame him a lot for what happened in 2006. 
I thought that Willie Randolph lacked confidence in Billy, hence why Aaron Heilman started a second inning in game seven and pitched that ninth inning. Billy Wagner was not on the mound because Billy Wagner was probably scared of Sotoguchi, and Willie Randolph was afraid of that. So, you know, I know Billy's got a lot of momentum towards making the Hall of Fame. I don't have, I don't want to honor him someday, put it that way. I don't want Billy in the freaking Mets Hall of Fame, that's for sure. Alex Rodriguez is still on the ballot. We all know our connections to A-Rod. He should have been a Met after the 2000 season. How that would have rewritten Met history, we'll save that for another podcast. Because I do think that's an hour. (laughs) We can do a whole podcast on A-Rod to the Mets fictitiously in 2000. But he also hit the pop-up on the Luis Castillo drop. So let's not forget that. Uh, Here's a guy who I did not know a lot of this. Omar Vizquel who's got no shot to get in the Hall of Fame because of his off-the-field issues. Joe McElvain was the general manager of the New York Mets in the early to mid-90s. He is quoted as saying, we tried to trade for Omar Vizquel. Omar Vizquel ended up being traded by Seattle to Cleveland. The Mets were hot for Vizquel. They really wanted a shortstop. They needed a shortstop. The only shortstop they had was Tim Bogart. The Mets turned down. I'll tell you what they turned down and what they offered. All right. They offered Jeremy Burnitz and Ryan Thompson, who were pretty hot prospects at the time. Thompson came back in the Cone trade, David Cone trade, and Jeremy Burnitz was a slugging prospect. The Mariners said no to that. Here's the one the Mets turned down. And this is a tough one, man. They turned down a straight up deal of Omar Vizquel for Bobby Jones. At this point, it is 1993 going into 1994. So you have to keep that in mind. Bobby Jones is our top pitching prospect. I'm not sure if he was ever viewed to the level of, oh, he's the next Tom Seaver. But Bobby Jones had pitched nine games in 1993 and had a 3.65 ERA. He was fine. It was no issue. But he's 23 years old. He's our top pitching prospect. He ended up having a very solid Met career. Wasn't great. Never became an ace. Very inconsistent like Bobby Jones would have one start with that balloon curveball would fall in for a strike and he'd dominate then he'd have starts where he'd get bombed and obviously also had an infamous start with us in a positive way when he pitched that one hitter to beat the Giants in 2000 his final year with the Mets it's easy to say the Mets needed to make this trade because Omar Vizquel you know ended up playing for the Cleveland Indians for 11 years and turned himself into a pretty good offensive player like a solid offensive player but also was a perennial gold glover. We make that trade. There's no Ray Ordonez. We make that trade. Vizquel's our shortstop into the next generation, I assume. So, yes, the Mets would have been better off making that trade, looking at it now with hindsight. I can't kill them for not making the trade the way we kill them for the Jay Payton, Gary Sheffield non-trade. But you think about it, you just said, like, you know, no rare donors, which means no Kaz Matsui, which means money could have been spent other places. It's it's always the, the mistakes that keep on, like, piggybacking off of other mistakes. And not saying that Vizcayel would have been as good with the Mets, and maybe he his career would have shifted somewhere else, maybe we would have traded him somewhere else down the line, too. But, I mean, guy was one of the best defensive shortstops of all time. Yeah, and uh, Joe McElvain wanted him. I mean, he clearly was trying to trade for him, but he had a line, and he didn't want to trade the top prospect in baseball or top pitching prospect for the Mets at the time, which was Bobby Jones. They ended up acquiring Jose Vizcaino right before the season, who was was fine. Like, you know, he was 
he's not Homer Vizquel, but he was he was okay. I don't want to rip him. I think they made that trade right before the start of the season because they knew they needed a shortstop. But yeah, Joe McElvain tried to get Omar Vizquel. It didn't work. Uh, a lot of other guys on the ballot are just going to be there for 30 seconds and leave. Jason Worth, Jared Weaver, Houston Street, Johnny Peralta, Mike Napoli, John Lackey, J.J. Hardy, Andre Ethier, Jacoby Ellsbury, Bronson Arroyo, and Matt Kane. There are three other guys who are first to the ballot who are former Mets. Carlos Beltran, we did a whole podcast on that. If you want to listen back into the archives of Rico Bronia, we devoted an hour plus to Beltran's legacy here. The other two guys, first we have Francisco Rodriguez. It's funny with him. I have a better feeling towards Francisco Rodriguez than I do Billy Wagner. Even though Francisco Rodriguez was really an irrelevant Met in history when you think about it. In 2009, he got off to an amazing start. His first blown save was the Luis Castillo game, which obviously wasn't his fault. He was about to get out of it when he got A-Rod to pop up and was an all-star that year. And in 2010, pitched great. Got hurt, I think missed some time, but pitched great when he pitched. And then in 2011, also pitched well, but the Mets sucked and they got rid of him. So he was only a Met for two and a half years. But I don't have any negative feelings towards him. I know he had that embarrassing thing with his father-in-law, got in a fight with him or something. But Francisco Rodriguez is one of those rare Met closers who I don't think Met fans hate. If he showed up at an old-timer's day, he wouldn't get a standing ovation, but I also don't think he would get booed mercifully. Well, because he didn't blow enough saves for us to get, uh, you know, to really get down on him. And he did his job. It's like, but again, it was during an insignificant period. So, like... We talk about this right now, like, hey, Edwin Diaz is the best closer in baseball. It's important to have him part of the Mets, but if they can't get to him, it's it's not going to be worth that move. That that's, that was K-Rod. K-Rod yeah. was great. We just couldn't get there, and it was <laughs> a little too little too late. Yeah, after the Mets lost in 08, Omar Minaya went out and got – yo. I'm sorry, not – yeah, oh, after 08, he went out and realized our bullpen was a big problem. Because remember, Billy Wagner got hurt. Luis Ayala was the closer at the end of the year. And he brought in two key relievers during the offseason, Francisco Rodriguez and J.J. Putz. And the assumption was this fixes all the problems. It didn't. (laughs) Spoiler alert. It did not. It just brought in a new era of Met suckitude. The period of 2009 to 2014 is, I wouldn't say just like, but similar to the period of 02 to 05, or the period of 92 to 96. Just a four-year period of sucking. You know, just a period of never in a pennant race, not relevant, just not good. The other guy on the ballot is R.A. Dickey. R.A. Dickey is obviously not a Hall of Famer, but what a story he is. You mentioned him earlier, Pete, in regards to the Met Hall of Fame. R.A. Dickey was known to Met fans because of Christopher Mad Dog Russo going on a classic R.A. Dickey rant. Because at the time, R.A. Dickey was a starting pitcher for the Mariners. He was 33 years old, and nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew who he was. He had his issues early in his career with Texas, had injuries, became a knuckleballer. Burst back onto the scene in 08, where he pitched to a 5 ERA for the Mariners. But there was a game that he pitched against the New York Mets in 2008, in which an interleague play, R.A. Dickey walked in a Shea Stadium and pitched seven scoreless innings. It was June 24th, and that day, the New York Mets got embarrassed. 
They lost the game by a final score of 11 to nothing. Oliver Perez, you may have heard of him, got his shit packed. Okay, he got destroyed. And R.A. Dickey, who had a 5 ERA, came out and threw seven scoreless innings and got a base hit in the game. And the next day on the fan, this is my second full year at WFAN, Christopher Russo was solo. Mike was on vacation because they were about to break up. Who knew? A few months later. And Dog went on a rant about Lesnar. I don't do a good dog imitation. I apologize. I'm just, we're having fun here, okay? Hey, listen, you cannot get shut out by R.A. Dickey. R.A. Dickey. Like just screaming and yelling about Dickey. And the way he said it was hilarious. I'll admit it. I was a bitter Med fan. I was upset about the game, but (laughs) it was classic. So I'm convinced Met fans only heard of R.A. Dickey not even because of the seven scoreless innings, but because of, oh, hey, that guy. It was, uh, it was an all-timer. It was an all-timer. I don't know if it's available on YouTube, but boy, people should find it. It was great. I feel like, I feel like Boomer and Geo dropped the Dickey line once in a while. I feel like I definitely heard that here and there. You know what? I'll make you a promise. The next Rico Bronia we post, which barring any breaking news, will be posted at some point Wednesday night into Thursday. I promise you I will track it down and we will play an excerpt of the famous Christopher Russo R.A. Dickey rant. Uh, even if it's just the drop of R.A. Dickey, but I want more than that. I, I'd like to find a good, you know who can find it for us? Dove Kramer. So Pete, ask him tomorrow <laughs> or, or I'll ask him. True story, Evan. I got the date there. I got the date. <laughs> okay, let's <listen laughs> my game. June 25th, because the game was June 24th. June 25th, 2008. There you go. Uh, as, far, as far as what Dickey did for the Mets, look, it, he was a beloved Met, again, on a crappy team. And it really started in 2010 when they called him up and out of nowhere pitched to a 280 ERA. And then 2011, 200 innings, makes 32 starts, real solid year. And then obviously puts it all together in 2012, wins the Cy Young. I think we all were on the same page that they needed to trade him. I don't think this was a Wilpon thing. Sometimes we get caught in that. We just blame everything on the Wilpons. This wasn't not wanting to give Dickey an extension because we're cheap. This was being smart. A 38-year-old knuckleballer who won a Cy Young, while he may be productive and make starts, which he did for Toronto, he's never going to repeat it. And here's what Dickey did after they traded him to Toronto. 34 starts, which is amazing. 224 innings. Great. 4-2 ERA. Following year. 34 starts, 215 innings. Again, fantastic. 370 RA. 2015, 40 years old, makes 33 starts, 214 innings, 390 RA. He was Bartolo Colon. That's really what he was. He was an older guy, gave you innings, was not great. And that's what Dickey was all the way until the bitter end, even with the Atlanta Braves in his final season at 42 years old. Guy went out, made every start. Guy went out, gave you a ton of innings but he was never going to come close to being what he was in 2012 when he won that Cy Young. So it was a smart move to trade him, but I have a positive view towards R.A. Dickey. You know, we did what we did. I think what sucks, though, is that trade, which at the time and for a few years looked like an all-timer, has cooled off a bit because everybody's gone. You know, Noah Syndergaard's time here is over. Travis Darno's time here is over. So even though, yes, it was a great trade, the Mets made a killing off it. It's kind of like the Beltron trade. 
once the big return is gone and no longer helping you, you're like, okay, well, what did we really win? The pennant. I'll give you that. I mean, Darno and Syndergaard contributed to the Mets winning the National League pennant. But that's it. And now they're gone. And now we don't like either guy. (laughs) It's like a bad breakup. So that's what that trade turned into. But R.A. Dickey, good Met. But he's never going to get into the Mets Hall of Fame, Pete. Well, uh, come on. I mean, the guy's a Cy Young. I think he deserved to, at least a, a nomination. And and again, like the special, it was three years. We talked about limited time. Talk about Johan was only a Met for four years. But you got to take in consideration those that, that stint. The team was terrible, but he was great. Um, but yeah, overall, I mean, you just look at the, the thing that frustrates me more about anything else. And we, you talked about like how 2015, like we've already looked at that team. Most everybody's gone. And that's what sucks, the sustainability of this franchise. And that's really where I'm excited to see the future of the Mets. We'll get to that in another podcast. But, like, Alonzo maybe getting locked up soon. Hopefully, maybe McNeil. You've already locked up Nemo, Lindor. Like, you're if the Mets do something special, these guys are going to be around for, like, a decade. Yeah, the hope is the Met Hall of Fame and retired numbers are going to be crowded 15 years from now. I did have a a proud moment. My son, my oldest son, Jet, was asked today who his favorite baseball player was. And it's always been Jacob deGrom. And I I admit, a part of that is my influence. He was my favorite player, and he wants to be like that. And he looks at the gentleman who asked him and said, well, it used to be Jacob deGrom, and now it's Pete Alonso." So it was a proud graduating moment for Jet. As on his own, he said, look, it used to be Jake. I've moved on to Pete, which is a fine answer because you can't say Justin Verlander. (laughs) That would be a horrible answer. So Pete, who will hopefully be here a long time, and I have more confidence that that will be the case, and we will get into his extension and what it could like at a later date because I think that'll be a big story as we rev up towards spring training. But he has now become the face of the team. I mean, the longest tenured Met is still Brandon Nimmo. So that hasn't changed. But Alonzo was the best offensive player or one of the best offensive players. Uh, he is going to very quickly become the David Wright of our era. Did you get Jet the Pete Alonzo jersey yet? No, because last year when I asked him, do you want a jersey? He requested Edwin Diaz. Now, I bought my youngest son Spence a Pete Alonzo jersey because I guess I was forcing it upon him or at least suggesting to him, Pete, be your guy. So we'll see. Going into the new season, maybe now Jet wants a Pete Alonzo. I, I have a win here. I told you, everybody in this household is a, uh, a Yankee fan but me. But I talked to Anthony, my five-year-old, and I keep on going, do you want Do you want a Pete Alonzo jersey? He's like, yeah. So I'm going to get him a Alonzo jersey before the start of the season. So I feel like that's a win. There you go. That's progress right there. Uh, Later this week, we'll get more into the current team and the current state of this roster as we creep a little bit closer to spring training. I mean, we are weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting. Also discuss the impact the World Baseball Classic may have on the Mets and many other topics, including our rewatch, which we'll get to soon, and the could-have-been Mets edition of Rico Brown. You can email us anytime, thericob at gmail.com, and obviously tweet at us. I'll be with Craig Monday through Friday at 2, Pete with Tiki and Tierney at 10 a.m. on WFAN. We appreciate you downloading and listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode 
of the Rico Bronio podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>